You're listening to Fixing Fundraising. Joining the self-proclaimed Agni Uncles of the charity sector is a wonderful guest and their biggest pet peeve. Here are your hosts, Tom Dufresne and Andy Kim. Hello and welcome to Fixing Fundraising, episode four, in brackets, A New Hope. Oh, God. <laughs> Joined, joining me is my co-host Andy King, as Hello. always. He's here. He's found a way into my flat once again. Yeah, you opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us this week is an esteemed guest, fundraising consultant Chris Richardson-Wright, who has opted to introduce himself, possibly because we're not very good at introducing guests. Surely not true. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, as Tom said, my name's Chris. I'm a Trust and Foundations consultant. Most of the time, um, I do sort of split between fundraising work in the youth sector here in the UK and international development work as well. I think we're both really excited to have Chris on the podcast because we've known him in various capacities. Uh, he was my manager at Too one long. point when I was an intern. That was very sweet. Thanks for keeping me on. That was nice of you. Uh, and most recently, he's been a fundraising consultant for the charity I'm a trustee of. And then you two have known each other since you were born? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely since I was born. Uh, uh, since our uni days, yeah, since, since Raising and Giving on, on, on Birmingham campus many, many moons ago. I won't say how many moons. Uh, too please. many moons, man. Too many That's moons. no moon. Anyway, right. We'll stop with the Star Wars references and get more into a different kind of bugbear. Um, which which of the biggest pet thieves have you chosen to, to bring up today, Chris? Well, um, hold, it's like strap in because I've gone for a, like a semi-serious one. Um, so one of my pet peeves, I think one of my biggest pet peeves and probably the reason that I'm no longer actually employed in the sector and that I work for myself mm. is that I think that we in fundraising are really, really rubbish at taking our lives in work and like our workplace quality of life and the quality of working practices in, in the sector. I think we don't take it seriously enough. I think we end up getting ourselves stressed out and finding ourselves in difficult places. And I wonder why, unlike every other sector, be it private sector, public sector, why we don't organise ourselves better in the workplace and why we don't join trade unions. Interesting, because there is obviously the Institute of Fundraising, but I don't think anyone would describe that as a trade union, obviously, because that's more about best practice of how you do the fundraising itself rather than employee rights, as it were, right? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really good question about the IOF because um, actually I the IOF was what started me off thinking about this two or three months ago um, off the back of some of the conversations around the IOF's chartered journey and I was talking with a friend who is a member of a, another profession that's chartered who's an engineer and um, we were talking about you know, what being chartered means to him and, and whether he sort of notices any difference. He, to be honest, he's always been a chartered engineer, so he doesn't really know the difference between mm. chartered and not chartered. But one of the things we were talking about was, you know, he reminded me of my student fundraising days, my events fundraising days back at sort of the start of my career many moons ago. <laughs> and we used to do an extreme amount of work outside of hours um, that was unpaid and we couldn't claim all the toil back. And the point that he made was, I don't think we'd do that. 
as engineers. And I thought, mm. ah, maybe you wouldn't actually. And I guess where, where, where my mind then went was, well, how can we take, try and tell everybody to take us seriously as a, as, you know, as a career, like, right? Like we're proper, we're real professionals. Fundraising is a real job. It requires a real set of skills. So we, you know, we deserve to be chartered. Fine. Fine. But at the same time, like we don't treat ourselves as if we take ourselves seriously. And so that for me is a real, like there's a real, there's a real gap between those two things. Um, and so I think the IOF is interesting to, to finally loop back to your question. Um, the IOF is interesting because it definitely, you know, it, it's good for breast practice. Um, but I think one of the challenges that the IOF would have if it tried to, you know, do that job where it you know, tries to improve working practices, etc., is that I, the IOF kind of acts at times as a bit of a bridge between fundraisers and also donors. Um, there's a lot of people who are perhaps slightly higher up the food chain who are involved in the IOF. And mm. my, my take on that is that often, you know, there are more managers in the IOF than there are non-managers, broadly speaking. Um, and that's the challenge around then organizing around, you know, what, what your workplace conditions are like is then difficult because um, you can't have your managers doing that. Yeah, um, it's one of the reasons why unions don't allow senior management a lot of the time to join, or some unions don't. So, I don't know. I mean, I wondered because, like Andy, you do you certainly do more with the with the IOF than than I've ever done. Mm. I wondered whether you thought that there was room because obviously the IOF has special interest groups for you know, um, prescribed groups and um, and things like that. And I was wondering whether you thought that there might be a bit more crossover there that I don't see. If I'm honest, I'm not sure. I know that the fundraising sector as a whole has started facilitating conversations around well-being a lot more than ever before. Like there's sessions on well-being at almost every fundraising conference I've been to this year, uh, some of which have been absolutely incredible. But they've been more focused on how you as an individual can take care of yourself. So on tackling your own imposter syndrome or on identifying the holes in your own bucket that is your uh, mental stability, mental health, Mm. rather than what the sector as a whole could be doing and should be doing um, and whether or not we could mobilize in a union-esque fashion so it's it's possible but I definitely take on board your point about there being more managers than Mm. uh, less management level officer and assistant level as I guess it would commonly be represented in the IOF Um, I only joined the IOF when I became a manager because I didn't necessarily see a value in it at an officer level because I just took the magazine from my manager at that point (laughs) and used her login. Yep. I'm not going to name her in case you're not allowed to do that. But um, (laughs) uh, yeah, I definitely think that there would be more scope for a second organisation for the IOF to retain its almost academic status and for there to be a union outside of them that could collaborate with the IOF but not exclusively be it. 
If no, that, definitely. I mean, w- one of the things that another one of the things that kind of got us sort of thinking and talking about this a little bit, and I've been talking about this with colleagues in the sector as well, who work in different types of fundraising roles, and it, it seems to be a conversation that events fundraisers and community fundraisers, I get a really positive response from when we talk about it. Um, and having been an events fundraiser myself, and, and I know you guys have done it as well, there's things that we do as kind of part of the course in that job, also other parts of fundraising, but some good examples are in, are in that work that I just don't think that anybody in any other sector would do. And I also think that if it was happening in another sector, we'd be like, oh, that's really bad. That's a bad thing. So, so you know, for, we're not happy. For people that are working in charities that maybe don't have a community or events on and maybe don't mm. immediately identify with what you're saying, can you give some examples of what we events fundraisers go through that you don't think would be acceptable in other sectors? Yeah, I mean, go through is a, a nice word, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what have I been put through? Um, Tell me yeah, about my problems, Chris. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, like the caveat is that a lot of the time we do it and we're okay with it at the time and stuff, and it seems to be a part of our career progression and stuff like that. I guess what I would want to challenge a little bit more mm. is like what actually, if we step back from that, like what, you know, is that a good or bad thing? So, I mean, an example, in one of my early jobs, I used to have to, to travel around to meet uh, groups of potential supporters who were often only available outside of working hours. And so I would kind of work in the office all day and then I'd hop in a car and I'd drive like 200 miles to an event and I'd do that. And then I'd come home and get back at maybe like one and I'd do that the next day. Um, and in peak seasons, so I guess one of the things that if you haven't worked in events and community before is that a lot of work, especially especially kind of challenge events and physical challenge events happens in at uh, certain times of the year. So there are, there are seasons for recruitment often or there are seasons for the actual events themselves. And during those seasons, I, you know, on a 38-hour-a-week contract, was regularly doing upwards of 70 to 80 hours a week. Sure. Um, mm. And... I think probably that will resonate with you guys, mm. um, but that you know that's probably happened. And in that particular job, I was able to claim some of the toil back, but I've been in other jobs where I wasn't. And if you don't claim the toil back, the effect you know if you look at it, if you look at it in terms of what how many hours you've worked and what you've got paid in those weeks, your hourly rate essentially like drops by half. And at that point, I was earning under minimum wage. Um, and the problem that I have for the sector around stuff like this, and, and this is a, I mean, this is one of the big ones for me because it's to do with how you're paid and how you're enumerated, which for me is, you know, a sign of how seriously we're taking ourselves as a sector. Um, the problem about this is that it's, it's not so much that you wouldn't choose, you know, if someone said to you, will you volunteer at the weekend to go and do this? You might say, yeah, great. I'm more than happy to volunteer to do this, but we're not often given a choice. We're told mm-hmm. you've got a 40 hour a week contract. The, the small print says plus any other hours that are desired. And then it turns out all the actual meat of your work happens out of hours. Um, and so you have to go and do that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that becomes shifts then into like compulsory staff volunteering. Uh, <laughs> where Yeah, yeah, it's volunteering. It's not part of your core hours. But like if you're if you're running an event and you say, nah, not going to that. Sorry, not going to steward that running event that I've been working on for six months. 
It's a Sunday. Just not doing it, guys. I, I, I don't think you're not going to get a good reaction. I don't think people are going to go, yeah, no, fair enough, Chris. Just just leave them to it. Um, <laughs> so it's that it's that compulsory, non-compulsory um, tension that I find that yeah. to me is, I think that's a problem. I mean, I, I have a specific example of that that I can really relate to. In, the, in my first year of my first job, there was no toil policy and it was kind of just as you exactly as you say expected um and i was also only being paid fifteen thousand pounds a year mm-hmm. um which yeah. is a fairly low salary um but at that point i decided about halfway through the year to look back and add up all the unpaid time that i'd done and submitted it to the board of trustees and even though my hourly rate was already quite low it equated to an extra £4,000 worth of pay that they hadn't paid me. Mm. Um, And for the next year, rather than create a toil system, they just paid me three grand more that next year, (laughs) which wasn't even the full four grand that I had mentioned. Um, And the year after that, they implemented some sort of a toil policy that still wasn't perfect. But, I was really uniquely positioned in that I got on really well with the CEOs and felt like I could do that. Mm. And I think in the majority of charities, especially ones larger than the one I was at, you, there's no way you do that. Like people aren't as confrontational as angry 21 year old me (laughs) maybe was. Um, And I definitely, you've always been a very confrontational guy, but that, but that works, right? Like, Like kudos to you for doing that because no one else would have done that. So few people would do it. And, you know, especially if they have a lot of people carry, you know, imposter syndrome style mm, yeah. concerns with them through maybe not even the early parts of their careers, but often through their whole careers. And, you know, it's harder if you're not, if you don't have the confidence, like like you, Andy, to, to say that, or you don't have the relationships. And also, you know, maybe you look around and you see that, like, yeah, in my experience, I could see that my line manager was putting exactly the same shifts as me. Um, yeah, absolutely working his butt off, and we were doing it together. And we, you know, it became kind of a camaraderie thing. We were like, you know what? How many how many miles have you done this week? And we compete for who could do the most miles. Um, now that was fine, fine, sort of, but also not really right because at a systemic level that i mean this particular example around around unpaid hours and stuff not only does that have an impact on you as an individual but i think that i remember lots of conversations when we were doing student fundraising about true roi Um, yeah because student fundraising when when i was doing it and i mean we were all kind of doing it at the same time which is always a nice a nice kind of touch point for us three but it was always like just on the edge of being profitable, especially when we were doing the the the, um, the challenge events. It was just two to one, but it wasn't two to one if you really added the staff time and all the other stuff in. And actually, I think you know, I think if we were to really factor hours of events teams, you know, doing the marathon, doing all of the lead up events, the halves, Silverstone, etc., into those run portfolio across those those run portfolios. Um, all of our colleagues who do community work when they're out speaking in the community or they're turning up at small events and things like that, if you added in the unpaid work they do, I think we'd be really frightened at what the actual ROI of those areas is. 
And whilst we prop them up on the back of essentially making our staff do an unsustainable amount of work, is that is that really a fundraising stream that you can rely on into the future? And should you ethically be doing that? Mm. And that's the big question, I think, right? There's Once you start factoring in those unknowns, and I've, I've been in this situation similarly as you guys both have, where we have worked in a high pace, high intensity fundraising event environment that, as you say, Chris, is seasonal, goes through these cycles. And there is this, for lack of a better word, there is an exploitative nature of it where if you are looking, if you're making a, a almost a false ROI of, of two to one, somewhere, someone somewhere is having to pay for that. And often it's the fundraiser is paying for that with their mental capacity or their social life or whatever it may be the the burning question for me is always and and maybe this is this is something you can help help us answer chris is like how how do you think we've got to this situation like how how do how has this been sustained for so long and what what are the possible like solutions to it like how how has it been so 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 prevalent i think is the i think before we answer that though we should acknowledge that all of us have worked in event fundraising at an officer and a manager level, and mm. all of us have managed other fundraisers doing that. Yeah, and all there. Yeah, we've all sent. I've sent them out to do it. Yeah, like we've all been culpable. Oh, absolutely. In that. Yeah, and it's worth it's acknowledging thing, yeah. that we were all okay with it, doing it ourselves, and okay with sending others to do it before yeah. we answer the question of how, because we need to acknowledge like the extent of the problem. That yeah. we can sit here now and say that's bad, but even at the time that we were sending juniors staff members to do it, yeah. we were like, "But well, I did it. I guess it's your turn." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's. I think that's such a good point, and I guess uh, kind of bouncing off that slightly is that I think when when we talk about workplace organising, so I've I've always been a member of a, of a union. I was signed up by a union rep on my second week of work at my first charity. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a charity that had, it was an international development organization. It had a large policy and programs team and quite a clear socio-political and environmental hot take, right? Like it knew it had a stance and it took it. Yeah. And so the people in that, they were, you know, they were oriented on the left and they saw trade union organising as a pretty normal thing to do in the workplace. Mm. Also, most of them were over 50 or 60, um, <laughs> do which, you, mind, you know, is a, is a big thing. Do you mind me asking what union that was? Yeah, so it's the union I'm still a member of. It was Unite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I signed up just because they were the only one and I've carried my subscription through all the organizations I've been at and some charities they've told me that they don't recognize my union membership others have said that they you know some charities I've not even felt able to tell the managers that I had a union membership because of because I knew that that the way that that would be um the way that that would be dealt with I knew that wouldn't be heard positively and I think one of the problems that we have um kind of coming off what you what you just said Andy is that we often construe union membership and organizing as being a really antagonistic thing and so you know we think about you know to talk about it means that we have to kind of dump on our managers essentially when actually Mm. Andy you're right like we've been managers we've not only have we been okay doing this ourselves but we've also sent other people out to do it and it's about trying to for me one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk about this was to try and just kind of start 
a conversation, even if it's just amongst us three and no one else finds it interesting, um, about how do, like, how can we start talking about this in a way that isn't just whinging about work and that is a lot more positive? Um, and how can we, you know, are there things that we are struggling to deal with in the sector that potentially there might be ways of, of dealing with, but we're not looking for the right tools? So uh, one of the examples for me is uh, it, it's been it's been really uh, affecting for me seeing things like the Oxfam crisis mm. last year and the year before, um, you know, everything from the charity to white hashtag a couple of weeks ago to fundraising yeah. two stuff that came out of the back of, of me too president's club all those sorts of things and we've done a lot of good talk about it and we've had some incredible conversations that we hadn't been having previously but uh, when it comes to people who are marginalized essentially having the mitt taken and having bad stuff done to them for, for me that you know and, and the, the example of gender in particular around the, the treatment of women in the sector and in, in all sectors, um, that's power. It's about power relations, right? Um, certain people feeling comfortable with the amount of power that they have to be able to get away with doing bad stuff. Um, and for me, what, what unions do is that we have, you know, as an individual, you have less power, but when you pool it with your colleagues, you have a little bit more. And when you pool it with more of your colleagues, you have a bit more. And then when that group of you guys talk to somebody else in a similar organization who most of the time you're competing for funding with and you say, actually, you know what, we also think this is rubbish. Um, that, that is a way of, of maybe beginning to balance these scales. And uh, there could be routes for, you know, when people are wanting to see action happen in the workplace, if we wait for leaders, leaders in organizations and in the sector to do that work for us, we're going to wait a long time. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I think there's almost a suggestion uh, albeit like a, a, a implied, like an implicit one, that by going down the chartered route, the IOF is kind of not not being that. They're not being the union. They they didn't come around and be like, we're the union for fundraisers. They they're going down a different route, which is which is fine. There needs to be a chartered. There absolutely needs to be a, a chartered organisation that represents fundraising because otherwise it will never be taken seriously as a as a profession. And that's a that's a different struggle. And one that that has to be picked up, but then there also is the flip side of that is 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 there room for um, unionization? And like you like you said, Chris, that idea of collective bargaining for people who are in, and if we agree it's a shared profession, then they should have that power of of collective bargaining. In the same way that the yeah, communications okay. union, all the communications workers have a union together where they they can help lobby to change policy or change the way they're treated or change. You know, agree on you know whatever it may be best working practices for that profession um, absolutely and, and even if it's just i mean so there's these kind of big macro arguments for them i mean one of my one of my particularly interest one of the things i think is interesting about a recent history of unionization in the sector is if you look at the st mungo strikes which have been rolling on and off for a few years now but this year in particular so st mungo staff um particularly their operational staff uh been on a series of, of sort of strike activity and industrial action over paying conditions. Mm -hmm. um, there was there was some striking going on in 2014, and there's been on and off, um, on and off uh, bits and bobs going on since then. And this year, it's it's kind of hit the hit the headlines again. Um, one of the things that some Mungo staff were talking about this time around was that they, as well as their own paying conditions, they 
staff wanted the management to stop handing over data around homeless beneficiaries to the Home Office as a part of uh, what we call the hostile environment policy. Um, now, I'm, I don't want to talk about that too much more because I don't really know much about it, but um, that's an example of staff being able to act about stuff that they felt management was doing badly. Mm. And was, at the end of the day, if you work for an organisation that behaves badly, it affects your career. I've met people who worked at kids' company who won't talk about their workers' fundraisers or perform to people at kids' company. Mm. Um, now, what happened at kids' company is not their fault. Uh, it's a fault of management. I've worked for organisations where there have been serious governance issues, and that has impacted my career um, through no fault of my own. You know, other people have made bad decisions, but we weren't able to do anything about it. So that's obviously one part of what unions can do. But kind of on a more practical level, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't realise, is um, you've actually got quite you've got more rights at work than you know about, and uh, a lot of this, there's, there's a lot of kind of stuff that goes on in our sector, especially increasingly you see you know, organisations going through big restructures or mm. going through mergers. I mean, mm. I, Andy, when you and I worked together, we worked at an organisation that uh, I'm not quite sure if you were there at the time, but that went through a merger with another organisation. It was just and starting as I was leaving. Just I'm starting, related. yeah. So du- during, during that process, uh, no unionisation and no organised bargaining or conversations on behalf of the workforce were allowed or entertained or sought, um, which is really, really interesting. So there wasn't, although staff were invited to contribute on a feedback panel, there was no kind of staff voice um, advocating for, or for example, keeping an eye on what the restructure meant for redundancies, for example. Is, um, is that a standard that would, would be expected across other sectors, do you know? Yeah, 100%. Okay. So um, Amnesty went into a big restructure at the start of this year, and that's kicked off a wave of industrial action from, from staff who are saying, whoa, hang on, you told us you were restructuring, but come on, like this is, this is wild. Um, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And um, what, what working together did is it meant that people who were going to keep their jobs – you know, they were able to stand up with their colleagues and say, you know what, actually, I didn't think that Dave next to me or Simon or Sarah next to me should be losing their job. And I certainly don't think they should be losing it with, you know, rubbish terms and no redundancy and stuff like that. And so this isn't specific to Amnesty. What happened is just an example. And so, you know, we will act together on that. Um, and that prevents, you know, prevents people being picked off and exploited. Um, and, you know, always, if we're going to talk structurally as well, who are the most likely people to be to have a difficult time at work? Well, often it's people who are more vulnerable and marginalised anyway, right? Because often yeah. they they're, they're easier to easier to deal with. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for on a day to day level, there's there's some really there's some really positive stuff that can come out of organising. And I used my union. I've used my union four times in my professional career, and each of those times I've been faced by a situation at work which I didn't know how to deal with and I was frightened of how to deal with because I thought I would lose my job and lose my career. Um, one of those times an employer was refusing to sign a permanent contract and were keeping me on a rolling probation indefinitely. Wow. Um, I didn't know what to do with that. I called my union and they gave me advice and I, I got that sorted. Um, 
another time I was having, having my job role restructured and was being pushed into taking a contract with a different name and a lower pay grade. Um, again, you know, uh, there was nobody for me to talk to in the workplace about that because I was, I was doing kind of a job on my own in a team and I, it was just me and then the CEO above me. And my union was able to help with that, um, at least to give me the confidence around what my rights were and were. And yeah, that was really invaluable. And if I'd wanted, the union would have sent someone to come with me in a meeting. Um, and I felt that like that was, I didn't need that. But can you imagine for colleagues, so for example, potentially who are a bit more vulnerable, let's yeah, say somebody who's, who's had an experience in the workplace, perhaps at an event where they've been inappropriately um, propositioned or by, by, for example, a donor or by somebody in a position of power, which we know are things that happen. Mm. Um, if that person's worried about talking to their manager about it, to be able to take somebody in from the union who's a co-worker, potentially your union rep, to sit down, to record those conversations with you, basically just to be there to give you a bit of backup and let you know that actually, you know what, none of us think this is cool. Like, this isn't cool and this shouldn't be happening and we're here to make sure that actually you as managers, whose job it is to make these things better and not put us at risk, that you're dealing with this. So as well as being kind of these kind of big esoteric, you know, it's good in principle if we all come together and work together, on a day-to-day level, there's actually loads that being in a union can do, as well as cheap car insurance, which I found out, which is an absolute winner. So Chris, you mentioned that you've contacted your union, Unite, quite a few times. Unite are a, a general workers' union, right? Yeah, they are. They, um, they're pretty broad. Do you think that being a member of Unite has been enough and is enough? Or do you think that there needs to be a more fundraising specific union? And how would you see that looking and happening? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, in terms of um, has it been enough in, uh, of camping discounts? No. Can never get enough camping discounts. <laughs> Has it been in our car insurance discounts? Potentially, yes, because that gets spammy, doesn't it, after a while. Mm. Um, but uh, so I'm going to say this with like with a caveat in that um, the answer actually is no. Um, but the reason for that isn't really kind of Unite's fault. So it just ha- so happens that my particular union is structured because it's a general union geographically rather than um, thematically. And they support mm. a lot of different types of workers. And my local union rep, who so you basically you call, you call Unite, you talk, you know, want to speak to your rep, and your local rep would be if you weren't represented in the workplace. So if you didn't have a a, a union organised and recognised in the workplace, where your rep would be a colleague, for example, who would take time off from work to go and be trained properly, so that they could answer your questions and support you. You go to a generalist, and basically the generalist is great because they know lots of stuff but um, they aren't experts in anything. And so right. my particular rep didn't, didn't have a lot of experience in our sector. Um, and so they're able to give me some kind of like, like bottom line, this is the law, this is illegal, this is illegal. Mm. Here's what we would do now if we were in your position. But no, they weren't able to give me much more support than that. Um, and I definitely felt like there was more understanding when we had a, like a rep in the workplace, when I worked in places with reps in the workplace. Right. And I think this this maybe comes back to kind of question we hinted at earlier around why aren't we doing it? Because um, I think I think fundamentally it's really confusing. So you know you have you have a general union in Unite, and if you Google um, charity sector unions, like five or six of the big unions 
say that they represent workers in the sector. Um, Unison, for example, seem to be a big one. They've got 60,000 colleagues from the sector, specifically the charity sector, to more than specifically fundraising. Right. Um, and, they're, and they're a big public sector union. So they do a lot of work with public, so public servants and people who are employed in the NHS and in the care industry in particular, and also in housing. I think housing is an interesting analogy for us because a lot of... Um, well, historically, the housing association sector has been non-profit. All those uh, go on a housing podcast and talk about whether the housing association <laughs> is non-profit. Fixing housing, not. coming to you soon. Fixing housing, no, no, pivoting. no. It's enough to get me to talk about one thing for an hour. I can't. Please don't encourage me to pivot too much. Um, oh, my bingo away. brain goes. This bingo brain happens, and then there's no chance of getting me back on topic. Um, but like. I think, and so that's a uh, union that's used to working people with people who are mission focused, mm. like mm. we are. So, you know, we aren't, you know, we're interested in social mission and uh, social um, outcomes, really, rather than economic and profit outcomes. Yeah. Um, but it's not really clear who you should join or really why. Um, what, I mean, you could, for, to some extent, we could maybe do a bit of like a compare the meerkat. For, for unions mm. where you got to know your benefits and not but it's not super clear and even if you go on the so if you can you can go on a website run by the TUC which is like the um, the umbrella group for all the different unions when they come together and they have a little union finder and you can say what section you're in and sector you're in and stuff and that's great but for us it stops at like charity sector community sector and it doesn't it, it comes up with like these five or six options and so I think something that you know, there are two things really that would maybe make us a little bit more aware of it. One is if um, we knew a little bit more about what they offered as opposed to just kind of stopping the bins being collected occasionally and causing chaos in South London with the railways, um, <laughs> which is, you know, yeah, they do, like, they do more than that. <laughs> oh, yeah, camping yeah, discounts. Yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, discount. yeah, yeah, got it, got it, got it. Yes, yeah, don't forget the camping discounts. How could I? Yeah. I'm actually I'm off to the Lake District next weekend on a, a union camping discount. Of course you are. Anyway, back to <laughs> fundraising mobilisation. Uh, <laughs> uh, damn it, it's happened now. My brain's gone. Um, yeah, I think it would be really useful if we either had a separate union that focused on perhaps us as a sector or one of these unions that is a specialist in the third sector already, which Unison seems really great and, um, and Unite do well. Unite are pretty good in as well. If they were to to support us in some way, I have no idea how this happens, right? Because I'm not a trade unionist, but to maybe support us to develop something specific for us as fundraisers, um, or for us to develop something, and then ask some of them, "Hey guys, can we affiliate with you?" Um, you I think unison, is, if you're listening, <laughs> now is where you contact us. At me, at me, unison. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, yeah, I mean, there is like, so Unite, Unite are, are pretty good with some stuff. So Unite did this big report back in May, which basically uh, was uh, horrendous. Well, they, they surveyed all of their, they surveyed 250 member organizations. So organizations, charities that have registered Unite unionization within the workplace. And these are some of the big boys. So there was the NSPCC, I think, um, Greenpeace, mm. uh, loads of, a, a real spread. I've, I've now obviously forgotten all the other ones. Um, but you can go and have a look at the report. And 
uh, I mean, unsurprising stuff, but you know, 80% of all of us in the sector think that our job causes us, like makes us stressed. Yeah. Like, ah, okay. Like, obviously that's fun. Like, of course it does. But 80%, that's an epidemic of stress. And, you know, it's all very well going on a mindfulness retreat to say, you know, actually, maybe you should, maybe, maybe Tom and Andy, you guys shouldn't be so stressed. Maybe you should buy yourself one of those nice lights that bathes you in sunlight in the morning and then you wouldn't be stressed. And you're like, yeah, but also maybe you shouldn't make you work for 80 hours a week. (laughs) Yeah. And, and this is like this is one of the things that, that that really gets my goat. And this isn't just our sector; it's all of them. But you, mm. for some reason, we expect more of our sector. We're like, oh, it's nice. We work for the charity sector. Everyone will treat us well. It's like, well, let me tell you right now, it, they won't. Right? Like, <laughs> like bosses are bosses, and workplaces are workplaces. And you can have a great boss who looks after you and doesn't make you do stuff that makes you unwell or puts you at risk in any sector. And you can have a terrible boss yeah. that does the opposite of all those things in any sector. And it doesn't matter whether it's the charity sector or the public sector or the private sector, because at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, the act of being an employee, and this is your marks alert, here it comes, um, is you know when you work, you're selling your time to your employer. And your employer job, the people running the organization, their job is to do the most stuff possible, be that mm. making profit, putting people in homes, getting them off the streets, having outcomes as possible, whilst shepherding resources as well as possible as well. Mm. And sadly, at some point, as you said, when the ROI gets low, someone's got to take the hit. And too often it's it's the workers, it's it's us, or it's people that we send out to work for us, you know, rightly. And one of the, I guess, one of the challenges for us is to begin getting our heads around, you know what, actually we have a lot in common with public sector workers. You know, they are mission focused people. Um, we've got a lot in common with people in the higher education sector, for example, with the University College Union, UCU, um, who are also, you know, they are not a non-for-profit mission focused union. Their workers are, are, you know, are in a sector that's not about solely about generating profit um, and they manage to organize. And so I think, you know, there's a there's a bit of a gap. And, you know, the answers might be that we need something a bit more specific for us as fundraisers because we have unique jobs that put us in unique places um, and put us also at unique risk. I mean, the, the, the power dynamic in being sent late at night to a fundraising function where there's alcohol involved, where mm. you've been told to go and make a sale, where you've got a schmooze, for example, a major donor or a corporate client, and you've got to make a sale, got to come away with a result, and then you've got to come home on your own late at night from the boozy event in a place you may not know that may be isolated. I mean, that's just one example of there's a lot going on in that space in terms mm. of power dynamics and expectations and things like that. And yeah, we, maybe we do need something a bit more specific. Yeah, totally. I think you're, you, the examples you're using are almost they're not they're unique to our sector in, in, in some ways the unique to the fundraising profession in some ways and actually there's an argument that the more professional recognition fundraising gets the more fuel on the fire there will be for unionization because the more yeah the more like uh i don't even want to use the word legitimized because it's a perfectly legitimate profession but the more like uh institutionalized it becomes as a profession as a career choice 
the more you're going to get people who go, you know what, the buck has to stop somewhere and we need to come up with a yeah. common a common set of rules that is not our organization versus this organization, but it's a common set of rules that we all adhere to, even though we'll be competing for funds and and, and grants and bids and whatever, if there isn't a common rule book, then actually standards get driven down, not up. And that's the risk. Yeah. And, and I have exactly. seen that actually exactly. work. So the student fundraising charities, um, there are lots of charities that do student fundraising, but there are seven or eight that do it in a major way. Um, have an informal group that have between them fleshed out a code of conduct that they've then ruled out. Uh, what's the word? Like put across all of their student volunteers and their mm. senior volunteers to deal with misconduct with student volunteers specifically. Um, it's really they're helped. unionizing. They, they don't, are, know, it, they they don't are. know it, but they are unionizing. <laughs> They've um, all very openly compared toil policies so that those who have lesser toil policies have been able to up their toil policy. Mm. Um, right. They've compared meal expenses because that's one of the other things that comes a lot with community events fundraisers is if you're traveling 200 miles to an event to see a supporter group, you're obviously not going to be able to cook at home which comes at a greater expense, um, uh, not only, oh man, the kebabs. Not only so to your body because you're having so the years. third McDonald's of the week and it's Wednesday, um, <laughs> but, but, it's, but, like, but also it, it costs... That would be good. There were some times when that was good to just be on three by Wednesday. Yeah, like, exactly. Well, I had it for lunch and dinner. Um, and in, in particular at East African Playgrounds where I used to work, um, they would always say... Uh, that they would accept policies if I could find four organizations that had an example of that policy. Mm. Uh, and so that group of other student fundraising charities where I could be like, send me your policies, ASAP, please. And they would have said, find four at 10 a.m. and at 10.04, I'd be like, here, it's one a minute. <laughs> I have sourced <laughs> them for you. And they were always quite good at that point. But I've definitely mm. seen it on a small scale work. So I definitely think... Communism now. <laughs> it's time to unionize. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe, maybe later. Maybe later. Yeah, communism like, later. Unionize first. Unionize. I mean, one of the things, all, all power to the Soviets. No, um, <laughs> no, G, no GCSE history, enough. Um, I mean, actually, Andy, you're doing yourself, you're doing yourself a damage here because you've just given a couple of really nice examples of like advocating for workers in the workplace and doing it really successfully. So firstly, I'm nominating you as my union rep. So that's great. Um, <laughs> I mean, but secondly, actually, that example you just gave gives me little little shivers down my spine because it doesn't like it doesn't have to be joining a trade union and going to Durham Miners Gala and singing the red flag and you know standing outside a burning bin. But what it, it can this stuff starts when we start to talk about things together um, across organisations as peers and we say, hang on, like we've all got to go to work now. We've chosen to come to work in a sector that is supposedly supposed to be sort of ethically rewarding as well as pay the bills mm. um but sadly sometimes it doesn't pay the bills and sometimes it also isn't that ethically rewarding um and actually do we like are we worth is our work worth less because we're supposed to be paid in the fuzzy food because i just think that's not nonsense isn't it like you can't say oh well you know if you like your job you should get paid less sadly as a society yeah. it seems to be what we do but it's not that's you know i'm like for me i'm at the point in my career and i think we should never have to be anything less where i'm like well actually you know what you can't pay me in feels 
Like, <laughs> I don't want toil. I don't want feels. I, I want to get paid. I want fair right, cash I money. <laughs> I just want the cash money. I don't even want that much. I want you know a camping I mean? I want, discount. I want, I want camping discounts and a pitiful salary. <laughs> just give me that. Just give me not a pitiful salary. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, and uh, and you know the example of you know, shared policies. That's wicked. That's so good. Um, and that's such a like such a nice practical example of how we can start having these conversations and moving just moving things forward a bit, maybe. So it doesn't have to be a grand plan. It, it it just starts with people maybe thinking, spending some time thinking. Actually, like, do I want this? Like, do is this how I want work to be? And can we do anything about it? Yeah. So I guess the call to action is is taking the spaces that already exist, such as uh, special interest groups, and adding yeah. workplace feelings and feelings around acceptable working conditions to the agendas, and seeing mm-hmm. where it goes from there. Right. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think so, you know, some of our colleagues, there'll be colleagues of ours listening to this being like, why are these guys talking about unions? We're all unionised in the workplace. And they may hate it. You know, they may not have a great experience with their union stuff. You know, these things aren't, aren't perfect. No form of human organisation is perfect. And I think um, I think we've used, you know, join, the, join, join a union is a really nice kind of simple way to, to banner this conversation when mm. actually what, what I guess would be more interesting would be, Please have tentative initial conversations with your colleagues about workplace practices. But it's not a snappy, not a snappy podcast hook, is it? It's not so, going to make a good time. Um, yeah, to the barricades, comrades. Instead, we'll go with um, <laughs> to the tentative yeah. uh, workplace conversations, comrades. To the water that's, cooler. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's the episode exactly. title. To the water cooler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, fundraisers of the world unite. You've nothing to lose but your. Oh, claiming half a toil policy um, <laughs> but there are like so there are things that we can do and you know one of the reasons like so as as someone who defines themselves as as disabled um I, you know, a lot of people perhaps don't look at me and see me in a prescribed group because apart from being disabled i'm white heterosexual male pale male still um one of the things that <laughs> that i find you know, a really good space to start having some of these conversations might be on your equality and diversity boards. You know, if you have someone, a rep who goes to talk on those or you talk, you have a you know, place for colleagues to come together and discuss that policy or someone to champion it, then a way into these conversations is to think about, for those of us who, you know, perhaps come from a, uh, you know, I use the term a prescribed group um, uh, or, or from potentially a, a more marginalised background, Um and for that, by that include, I include, you know, BAME colleagues, uh, LGBTQ plus colleagues, disabled colleagues, um, and there's, you know, there's a conversation to be had around people who really feel this material stuff hardest, um, yeah. mm. and the way of putting conversations around this interaction are to perhaps raise in those in those kind of circles. Actually, you know. What is it about the way that we work that one makes life harder for for our colleagues, um, and then makes it harder for us to get more diversity in the sector because we're either scaring people out or making it look unsustainable to come in? Um, and again, you know, those conversations around equality and diversity, I was reminded really nicely at, a, at an away day, which I enjoyed, which for once um, recently, where we had a, a conversation around equality and diversity, which was talking about some of the less obvious things. So often we don't think about equality and diversity around 
you know, sharing of parenting in, in the home and things like that. And, you know, a job which means that you are unable to plan having weekends or what time you'll be home because you've got to do kind of often ad hoc, out of hours work. That's really difficult for people who want to parent in a certain way. Um, and, you know, if you're a single parent, for example, you can't take a job that means that you have to be all over the place on weekends. Um, or you'd find it a lot harder to. And so there's, yeah, getting, you know, equality and diversity is, is a hot topic at the moment in our sector. And a really material way of us doing something about it is to take some of these issues around the workplace and raise them as a part of making the workplace more accessible for colleagues who aren't, uh, well, colleagues, colleagues who are who are different, basically, colleagues who are, who are different in whatever way. Um, because it's where those, it's where those, where the rubber hits the road on this stuff, and it stops being, you know, it stops being uh, like uh, a theoretical thing or a, a kind of we should, it's best we do this. The people who this impacts first and most are are people who either are slightly more marginalised than other groups or who um, or who are a bit different. Mm. And that's a really practical way forward for us to start putting some of this into action. Um, but aside from that, you know, having having these conversations, asking your colleagues if they're in a union, are you in a union? Nah, me neither. Are you in a union? Nah, it'll be like the crows. What are the crows in? Uh, no, weird, weird children's, weird children's cartoon reference. We'll drop that right there. Um, no, no, it's either the Jungle Book or uh, what's the one with the fairies in the forest and the smoke? smoke. Oh, I thought you meant the the, the seagulls and in Gully. Finding Nemo. I assumed you meant the seagulls as well, but I think you mean the crows in Dumbo, don't you? Uh, oh. I might do the ones that were voiced by the Beatles. Yeah. Anyway, maybe. Um, I'm really yeah, young. Having, having some of those conversations. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Thank you. I'm very old. Um, <laughs> I feel older. I feel older than I am, and it's all the out of hours work I've had to do. <laughs> <laughs> in my working career, I've put in many more years than I have on my CV. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, like no, um, that's what we should do. You should have your age, and then you should have your fundraising. Age. I was about yeah. to say, like a dog, you have your fundraising age. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's like 112. <laughs> well, I worked in community for have... four years, so that's 12 years, and then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. We should make That'd a, a like a fundraising age calculator. <laughs> yeah, even better. Face app, but it's for fundraisers. <laughs> and it, it makes you look like your real fundraising age. This is it, guys. I love it. It's the future. It is the future. Well, no, literally, it's our future. Yes. We'll be looking at it. And it'll be Unless we do it'll be something like about it. <laughs> it's going to be a husk. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, those, you know, those in terms of what do you want to do, uh, yeah, I think the first place for us is to talk about it. And I think that maybe the IOF would be an interesting place to talk about it. The, the prescribed groups are really are really helpful. The special interest groups are really helpful. Mm. There's not enough of them. There's not one for disabled colleagues yet. Um, uh, you know, there's, if, mm. if you're going to treat them like liberation groups, there's got to be groups for everybody. And this is an example of where the IOF maybe isn't quite the right place, right? But certainly cool. it would be interesting to, to have a session if there was just an open conversation or an open session at conference for people to explore the idea. Um, perhaps for people to start creating a bit of content about it, to maybe start talking about it. Um, and that's, I think that's the start of it because it's, you know, it's a, it's a really long journey. We're a long way back from, as a society, especially younger generations like ours from really understanding unions being a commonplace thing in our lives. Um, and there's a quite, quite a lot of kind of education and, um, 
and just understanding really of one what your rights are and two how does a union interact can a union or workplace organizing of any kind interact with those rights and bolster them um so yeah i mean one you could join the union but two you could also just talk about it i think that is a is a good start for us uh, as a sector because we haven't really got a language around this stuff and we've got quite a lot of unpicking to do of not feeling like we can complain about our jobs because they're yeah. a good cause yeah totally which like as a part of the yeah as a part of the charter journey stuff we we've got to leave behind like we have to we have to leave this stuff behind not only does it damage us and our careers it damages the sector because when you say that to someone who's not in in the sector you say well you know it doesn't really matter that i do 150 to 200 percent more work this week because hey it's for a good cause that reinforces this idea of victorian idea of what charity is mm. um and what it means uh that it mean or you know that it means sacrifice and kind of self-martyrdom and stuff like that when actually you know that's not how i see our sector i see it as an absolutely vital leg of a of a stool that holds society up um and you know our colleagues in other sectors take themselves seriously and it's time for us to as well it's question time um ba, 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 ba. awesome we're gonna use that as the jingle forever uh <laughs> In the last two years, have you started a new habit or behavior that you'd recommend with others uh, that is fulfilling or has helped you um, work in a, in a better way? Um, Other than unionizing? Yes. Yes, I have. Are you going to tell Did us what it is? Yeah, tell us about it. Go on, tell us about it. All right, I'll tell you about it. Um, uh, this is like this is terrible and super cliche. But uh, like when I so I I've been working as a consultant freelancer for nearly two years now, and um, I've always understood the concept, the idea of you know, always ask for feedback, get mm. some feedback. That'll yeah. be great. That's good for learning. Um, but I never really realised what that was until the rubber hits the road and you have to ask all of your clients for feedback. Because if you don't ask them for feedback, you don't have quotes and references. So this became this became like a practice to ask for feedback. And mm. I realized that I always thought I was someone who was really good at having feedback. Um, turns out I am like, I am a, a delicate little flower. And <laughs> I was not as good at receiving feedback as I thought I was. So um, what I've been trying to do is to make sure that uh, I double down and really ask for feedback on a job, especially when it hasn't gone like wholly to plan. Because, although obviously, guys, most of my work goes to plan, um, please hire me, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes stuff doesn't, right? Like, you know, maybe the brief isn't, the brief changes midway through or whatever, or like the information isn't there. Or maybe you just don't do as good a job as you thought you'd be able to do. Um, it's really hard to know that, and sometimes I think this is maybe an expectation you build yourself, but to know that you've not done the piece of work that you'd want to do, and to still go back afterwards, after the check's been paid, and say, excuse me, please tell me more about this, how <laughs> this went. Yeah. Um, and that's been really hard to do, because uh, I think naturally we wouldn't always put ourselves through that level of masochism, but um, really, really helpful. And uh, over time, what it's done is it's kind of cultivated an ability for me to separate myself from my work. Um, so, like, work me is, is a person, but also 
you know, if something doesn't go great with a job or it doesn't go as expect as planned, that's also fine. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a bad dude. Um, it's just work and, you know, you can learn from it. And so that's been, that's been like a behavior that I've been forced to do, but has become something that I was quite frightened of, but has now become something really positive. Awesome. Okay. Love it. What do you do to handle stress or tough days, Chris? Um, normal stuff, Tom. No, nothing <laughs> normal that normal guys don't do. I, uh, I I like to like I don't like sitting about, so I normally do something reasonably active. So I'm currently hopping on the <clears throat> the climbing trend. So I've got into bouldering and awesome. go for a walk, go for a, go for a cycle, read a sci-fi book something like that consult ancient Chinese scripture all the all the, all the normal stuff all the normal stuff um, yeah obsess about our fancy cycling team watch a bit of sports yeah nothing I mean nothing out of the ordinary um, I think one of the things that like uh, for all of the people who might listen who are also self-employed is that um, the delineation when you're self-employed between work and not work time especially yeah. if you work from your home mm-hmm. um that, that blurs and so uh, often like whereas maybe in the past I'd come home from work and you know sit on the sofa or maybe like uh, watch something or something like that now uh, basically I have to be out of the house so my relaxing time is now like generally something that's a bit more active because nice. uh, it's weird just going and sitting in the pub on your own yeah and it's if your work is your home where do you you got to draw that line somewhere right so it's it's got to be get outside far away as possible nice awesome yep okay chris sorry i won't do any more trump voice (laughs) (laughs) we actually didn't record that bit but it's good for a blooper anyway thank goodness thank goodness for that (laughs) uh if you were followed around with a sign above your head what would it say and why uh, it would say please at me and the please would be in italics just to let you know like how desperate I am for more Twitter engagement <laughs> I am I am was talking with someone the other day and I'm basically I'm really bad at Twitter I'm bad at all social media um, and I, I I revealed to somebody who laughed at me this is just like my shame podcast this is weird uh, <laughs> basically the more I tweet the less followers I have so which means that my takes like dead on arrival, stone cold takes. Um, and yeah, like the more I tweet, the less followers I have, the more I lurk, the more my follower count goes up. Um, so yeah, help, like help a guy out, little follow, little atting, perfect. Right, we'll bear it in mind. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And last but not least of our questions, Chris, do you have a favourite joke that you uh, would like to share with our listeners and us? I do. Are you ready? We are. Oh, yeah. It's a a big one. Strap in. Uh, How does a Welshman eat a cheese? Uh, Kefili. Oh, that's good. Uh, I did not see that coming. uh, Normally, I'm on my cheese jokes, but I did not see that coming. Especially for you, that one, Tom. uh, We used to tell a lot of cheese jokes back in the day. We used to love the cheese jokes. for you. I love the cheese jokes. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Chris. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if people want to desperately at you, as you've requested, where can they find more of you online? Uh, so you can desperately at me at C underscore R right. Um, 
if you would like to make me even happier and you'd like to talk to me about some work potentially, this hasn't entirely scared you off, uh, you can also find me at airballoon.consulting, which is the brand that I mostly work out of, but I have a couple of other associates that sometimes uh, sometimes we work together on projects as well. So yeah, Twitter for Twitter for content and uh, airballoon.consulting for anything slightly more meaningful. Awesome. We'll make sure we put links in the description as well. Um, a bit of genuine pleasure. So thank you very much for um, giving up your time and talking to us on Fixing Fundraising. Thanks. No problem. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure.